Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for joining me as we continue our new Tuesday series where one of our all-star podcast guests will be taking over the podcast, picking the topics for the month, and joining me on all the episodes. For the month of February, our takeover guest is Andrea Sol, and our topic is human capital. Given his passion for intangibles, he's definitely the perfect person to walk us through this intangible asset. So I know there's a lot of skepticism around, well, yeah, it isn't an asset because it's too squishy. The accountants say it's not an asset. There's all sorts of reasons. But but when you have smart money saying, well, that's all great, but in the real world, we're investing real money and we're, you know, the leading edge smart investors are doing this. That's how their their thesis to create value in a transaction. I, I don't know that there's a better argument that this is real than sophisticated investors investing on that basis. As we continue to demonstrate that these actions really drive both social and financial value creation, the next step is having consistency in, in scale that this done and also getting these underwritten on more and more deals. The more and more that that happens, I think it might then help drive some of the accounting. Today, Andreas is joined by Carrie Duarte, a PwC deals partner specializing in advising clients in driving human capital value creation in mergers and acquisitions. Andreas and Carrie will share their insights on how the value of human capital is manifesting itself through deals. Spoiler alert, you'll hear that leading acquirers are driving both social value creation, so that's S in ESG, and financial value creation through the workforce. They'll also share practical and tactical advice for management teams on how to manage human capital to accelerate value creation, even outside of a deal. And you'll also see Carrie and Andreas have a long history of working together, and that camaraderie definitely comes through in the podcast. With that, let's get started. Andreas, Carrie, thanks so much for joining me today for the final episode in our Human Capital Podcast series, although I think we probably already have some offshoots from previous discussions we've had in this series. But we've been talking about macroeconomic trends, how those are impacting the workforce, also how human capital is considered or perhaps not considered in the financial statements. Uh, But I really wanted to bring this all together today and talk about the true value of human capital and particularly how that gets reflected in deals, which I know value is something near and dear to Andreas's heart. And I know the deals perspective, uh, Carrie, you're going to have a lot to say to us. But Andreas, perhaps before we get further into it, you can kind of tie all those pieces together and what we're going to address today. Sure. So we've talked about this idea that human capital is an asset. And in today's economy, it's much more important than it was in the past. But that, you know, our reporting systems and certainly in financial reporting haven't quite caught up to that reality Maybe ESG reporting starts to connect the dots a little bit. But for those who are maybe still a little bit skeptical that is this real, this idea that it's an asset that has value and you can create value by investing in it, that you know the money you spend related to human capital isn't just an expenditure, some of it is an investment. I always think that the best way to illustrate that is through transactions, because in transactions, you are spending a lot of money and you have particularly sophisticated um, uh, acquirers have a very robust value proposition 
that's driving why they're conduct why they're entering into the transaction and why they're paying what they're paying. And so that's like sort of the ultimate test of is there actually a there there, right? And so historically, if you think about deals, a lot of deals were you know, the why you did the deal and why you paid what you paid was a function of the synergies you could create. And what was often the number one synergy? Well, it was reducing the cost mm-hmm. of labor by by reducing headcount. That um, that's how people created synergies, which drove the deal premium. Um, that basically is a transaction that anyone can do. And if that's your sole premise for a transaction today, um, it will be a competitive bid situation. And in a competitive bid situation, basically all the value goes to the seller and the buyer mm-hmm. has not a lot left to uh, work with. So I think what we want to talk about here is if you're more thoughtful about how to create value in a, in a transaction through human capital, you don't find yourself in that, uh, in that situation. And I think that's an area where Carrie will have a lot of, uh, a lot of insights. So before I go to Carrie, though, I want to go back to what we talked about in prior podcasts, Andreas, just to remind and level set. From an accounting point of view, since we are dealing with accountants here, just remind us what happens with human capital in deal accounting and valuation. So we all know that in general, you don't have many intangibles on the financial exactly. statements. When you acquire a business, that's sort of the one exception where you do put a lot of intangibles on the uh, on the balance sheet. The problem is there's an exception in the accounting rules that say you don't do that with human capital. Human capital, whatever you acquire in terms of value, it ends up in goodwill along with lots of other things. So it sort of loses its loses its character. All right. Well, in a way, though, I think there's a benefit to that because, as we know, goodwill is not amortized. And so that shows that perhaps human capital is viewed as sort of a lasting uh, asset with a long duration. And we do see some eye-popping goodwill numbers in some of these deals. So, you know, maybe indirectly we're going to prove some of that point. But with that backdrop then, Carrie, what are you seeing right now from a deals perspective? It's been so interesting to see how this is evolving, and especially when you hear about what the talent market is doing. Um, I think our P- our PE clients, um, in particular, have gone through so many different ways of getting those outsized returns, and uh, many of us in the talent industry have been waiting for this moment. Like it feels it's it's here and it's exciting. I'll say if we kind of boil it down to three of the trends that I'm seeing. Number one. PE firms are now investing in talent to drive those outside outsized returns. Um, I've never seen, we've never seen greater focus on during diligence and investing up front on does this organization have the right leaders with the right experiences and the right capabilities to drive this forward? PE firms didn't used to uh, diligence and think that was so important to do up front even before they bought the bought the company. And also a greater focus on capability development to get people the right capabilities, particularly think about the volume of digital transformations, and then also about attracting and retaining the right talent and how when you get that right, it just drives, again, Those they're seeing that correlation to some of those outsized returns. That's number one. Number two, Also, leading-edge PE firms are now focusing on this intersection between workforce value creation and the S and ESG, right? If you think about that, so many companies, they have their ESG. It's almost a checklist, right? 
Um, but those organizations that say instead of you could boil the ocean around workforce value creation and SNESG, let's find that intersection because there are things that PE firms in particular are saying, if I do this, it does drive not only social value creation, but financial value creation. We can talk a little bit about some of the work we're doing with PE firms and what they're willing to invest in up front, which I think is a great indicator for all of us and, and corporates alike. Um, and then the third thing that we're seeing, you know, Andreas, you mentioned historically folks would just kind of extract value or by cutting heads, mm-hmm. cutting comp and Ben. And, you know, there are still moments where we see that in the deals, right? That That's still a piece of it. But what I'm seeing for the first time is this focus, like given the talent market, right? And there is a growing recognition about the power of unleashing this discretionary energy of your workforce that before getting to the slashing and burning, um, what I'm seeing a lot of PE firms start to focus on are labor cost management, pragmatic, practical approaches across the portfolio or right after a deal happens, but basically saying, are we spending our dollars in the right way? Like, where do we have value leakage? Because we're seeing that the historical ways of spending money on the workforce are not what the workforce value. And in fact, things like flexibility, things like mentorship, things like new skills are actually less costly often than some of the dollars that they're spending on the traditional big structured benefits that aren't incrementally as valued. So there's a lot of, we're doing a lot of the, with PE firms around voice of the worker to find what they prefer that also results in significant uplifts to EBITDA going forward, right? So it's, are we spending the dollars in the right place and is management and the workforce spending their time in the right place? Like time as a currency, we're seeing more and more. And how do you capture that so that you can reduce hard dollar costs, reduce time spent, but with greater ROI, driving, again, that financial value creation through your workforce. And I think this is what we were talking about the last time, about just a lot of these things are, that's not the way people have traditionally um, thought about it, where this this evaluation of, is the money I'm spending in the human capital space, is it value-enhancing that that's just not a concept the way it is with R&D or brand building expenses. It's just, it's always been a fundamentally different, uh, different mindset. So this is a change. And, you know, if you think about it again, through the M&A lens, if you have a company that's not doing this well currently, and you're an acquirer that has the ability to call it quote unquote, put in place the right people, the right processes to actually do this better you can create value um, without, again, having to do the traditional, well, we'll just use blunt force and say we're going to reduce the headcount in each department by 15%, right? So it's a, it's a different world. So let me ask a question before we dive into each of those topics, because Carrie, you said uh, that it's here. This change is here. And then you said, Andreas, that this is a change. And so what, I mean, Carrie, I don't know if you can answer this question, but is there a trigger that has led to this or has it been gradual? Is it, I think we look at the pandemic for every change or many changes we're looking at today. Sort of what do we see as the key driving factor? There have been a couple of factors. I think first, 
private equity firms, you know, initially were using, I'll say, financial engineering, and they've gone through, and then it was like operational excellence. How do they beat the market on driving returns with these with these companies? And so this is one of the frontiers that hadn't been tackled or recognized, right? And maybe it's because probably one of the contributing factors was the lack of accounting, right, for this human capital asset. But as they're seeing more and more evidence, and we've been doing a lot of research, and we can get to that in a minute, that's number the, number one factor. Number two is the the you know, that we talk about the war on talent, right? And how critical that is. And they're recognizing when you do that slash and burn, right? The remaining workforce is just numb sometimes mm-hmm. or like, how do you, so how do you motivate that workforce? And was that the right way? And are we getting, we may be getting short-term, really short-term results, right? But how do you do this in a way to energize and get that, the remaining workforce to really run through walls for you? Right. So it's that war on talent, um, along with like the PE firm saying, where can we how can we beat the market here? We're not saying that this is broad based, that everyone is doing this. Mm -hmm. This is the leading edge of some of the more sophisticated PE firms, which tend to be among the more sophisticated acquirers because that's acquiring businesses and fixing them and selling them at a higher price is their business model. So what tends to happen is these things start there and then they filter through the uh, through the M&A system. And then the next thing is, as you know, management teams get exposed to this, they then go work for other companies mm-hmm. and they start to preemptively start to think about some of these things in the ordinary course, as opposed to like a transaction having to be the trigger to change a business practice. So this is something that's developing, not the, the base case, <laughs> by any, which is why it's interesting because the way you make money in a deal is you have a premise that not everybody else is doing. Otherwise, again, you just get bid up and then all the value accrues to the seller and you can't generate those outsized returns that certainly PE funds need to in order to you know, meet the commitments to their uh, to their investors, right? Well, and I think uh, you know, from a listener perspective, the obvious question here is then it's like, well, I want to be that company that values my workforce and that you know creates value there. But I think that's sort of our, our final point because Carrie, I want to dive deeper into each of those things because I think that's going to answer part of my question is if we can get into some more specifics. So starting at the beginning, the first one you mentioned is the fact that PE firms now are really seeing this investment in talent. And I think that ties back into some of what we talked about earlier in the series, but also to my question of, well, how do I do this myself? That's part of the answer. So what are you really seeing as those types of investments? Yeah, let me let me walk you through maybe two examples that I think bring different aspects to life. Um, one is um, m- so many deals right now are also investing in companies who are on somewhere on their journey for their digital transformation, if you will. If you think about the shift in the talent and what's needed from a skills and capabilities perspective, that's really significant. And so we're seeing that part of the diligence process is also understanding the digital acumen, right? But what is also interesting, I think, from a deal perspective is if the company doesn't have that yet, that means there's opportunity there, Mm. right? Um, And so as well as when we talked about the right leaders and the right roles and because another big piece for private equity firms is are you going to achieve the strategy, the value creation plan, and if so, how quickly? 
So when we can help them accelerate achieving that value creation plan, that is significant value because if you hit those returns in two years instead of four years, that's significant, right? So let's say, for example, we just recently did an, an IT services deal. And as we looked into the diligence there, this IT services company was making a shift in their go-to-market strategy from you know, traditional IT siloed services to becoming a digital transformation advisor when it comes to the technology to support that, right? So think about how your go-to-market team needs to shift. Think about the skills and capabilities. People need to go from selling like pieces and, you know, discrete services to becoming more business advisors and learning to listen and knit things together, as well as like how you think about the leadership team to go drive all of this change. And as we looked at it, what we found is the leadership team that was so successful to get them to this point, as they took this forward, they had multiple people driving pieces of this change and transformation with no single person accountable, but also no one with the skills who had done this before. Right. And so part of the investment that this PE firm made wasn't just slash and burn folks. It mm -hmm. was like, we need to go hire someone now who has that experience. And it's also how you structure the accountability, the organization of that leadership team so that you have like a single person who's really accountable, empowered to drive really significant pieces of the strategy together. So I, I hope you know, that kind of helps bring it to life and how we see PE firms making this, this, this investment. That's kind of one of the examples. So before you go on to your next example, again, if I'm in the shoes of, okay, I, am not really looking for a mm -hmm. PE firm to come in and, and change <laughs> things, but yeah. I, as a management team myself want to maybe adopt some of the strategies. So is it taking a step back to say, do we have the skill set within our management team to take this forward? Maybe we do need to hire or otherwise, is that sort of the lesson? Yeah, abs absolutely. I mean, great question. Thanks for having me clarify <laughs> this, which is, you know, wherever you're, you're, if there's a shift in strategy or you've gotten to this point and where we're going next, have, have you taken a step back to say, do our leaders, do our workers, like, what do we need to do or do differently? Do we have the skills and capabilities? And it's also investing in, do we have the ways of working to achieve that? Right. So what do I mean by that? Because that sounds kind of theoretical. Um, one of the big pieces as you think about digital transformation is getting your workforce and your leaders to work openly and socially. Right. Versus that siloed approach. That's one of the biggest value drivers we find is in existing organizations is breaking down those silos of working. So how do you do that specifically tactically? What does that mean in coming up with examples of what people do every day that they need to do differently to get comfortable with working in this new way? So it's skills, capabilities and behaviors. Take a look at your strategy. What do we need to your business strategy? And then taking a look at this workforce strategy in terms of skills and capabilities of our leaders, our managers, our workers, as well as our ways of working and the culture to really get after and, and deliver on that strategy. So what was your other, I know you said you had another example. The other example is, you know, trying to keep it really practical and tactical. And some of these examples, the other thing that, that we're seeing a lot more private equity diligence right now is when we talk about time as a currency, right? And as we start to think about where I, you know, the beginning opportunities around valuation and ultimately the real indicator is when we can get these underwritten when the PE firms are going out to get, 
debt for the deals, right? So one of the concepts is thinking about this cost of turnover, right? We're seeing that a lot more, which is for every 1% of turnover, how much does that cost the business in terms of your recruiting costs, in terms of the time of your hiring managers, of onboarding these folks, right? So in a recent deal, as we were looking at this, the, the PE firm is absolutely all over this. We looked at the turnover and at first blush, turnover was much higher than we would have expected in the market, even given the current environment, right? As we dug in, we found that over half of that turnover was happening in the first 90 days of hiring for on the uh, on the manufacturing floor and as we looked at it you dug in a little deeper and you found that the just the interviewing process was not interviewing for the right skills looking for the setting the right expectations familiarity with shift work right and so this is not a big tech technology solution to this issue it was a simple fix to adjust the interviewing process, adjust the onboarding process. And then for every 1%, 2%, in this case, it was a 10% reduction in turnover. Think about all the, the value leakage that you've mitigated. And there are you know simplified approaches to how you put numbers to reducing the hard dollars that you're spending on recruiting, onboarding, as well as the time and effort of your management and your organization. And we're seeing more and more of that, of practical, tactical you know, we weren't cutting heads, right? But we were saying, how do we get the right people in the right roles at the right time and minimizing this value leakage? And how does that, you know, drive returns in terms of efficiency and ultimately to EBITDA? Maybe to your question from a minute ago, you know, I think this is a good example of management in theory could have fixed that problem, but often M&A is the catalyst because you get this, not only do you get the outside in sort of lens, but you get a level of focus where you just ask questions that aren't being asked mm -hmm. in the uh, normal course. Or in this case, I suspect there's a lot of data that was created as a result of inquiries during the due diligence process that the company was not already um, you know, preparing or analyzing in the ordinary course of business. And as we talked about in some of the other episodes, I mean, this is one of the challenges with this space is because people haven't collected a lot of this type of information because they weren't viewing it as an asset. They weren't viewing it as a, a lever to create value. So you weren't collecting the right data. And so things like this that became obvious during the diligence process apparently wasn't obvious to the, uh, to the company. Yeah. And I think to that point, Andres, you and I spoke on a previous episode about the fact that even if people are collecting data on human capital and it's not to downgrade the importance of the data that's being collected, but it is things like diversity and inclusion or, or other statistics, maybe um, discrepancies in pay between, you know, different genders or those types of statistics and perhaps not statistics that are really going down into how people are working or in, that are impacting true, like I'll call it bottom line. So there is a different type of statistic that you're talking about is some of this management. Definitely, these are some different statistics. And just since you brought that up, yeah, I think the a, a critical indicator of is the system working, and I don't see many companies focused on this, is internal rate of promotion, right? Because what does that tell you? That tells you you're getting the right people in the right roles, and they have career paths, mm -hmm. right? And they are building capabilities and, and growing through your system. And especially if you want it, the intersection of DE&I, internal promotion rates, mm -hmm. right? Those are the organizations we find that have the, you know, the higher statistics there. Those are organizations that are outperforming, right? And it also gets to 
how do you do that? And and this is again where we see a lot of PE firms. So I'm jumping right to the second bullet. Okay, that's fine. That's good. <laughs> but it's connected. You can segue yourself. <laughs> um, is is through this concept of do we provide a good job? Right. And because when you have good jobs, people stay, they grow, they develop. And what we are finding is when you when you have this and like, what do you mean by a good job? Like we've been doing this research and then putting it into practice that companies that create this good job are the ones that are outperforming their peers on all the financial and operational metrics. And so much so that. Um, we, there's this private equity firm that we work with, um, who, as they started their social impact fund, what they've said is we are investing to do good in the world and we are going to hold ourselves to the upper quartile of returns of like all private equity firms. Right. And so as we worked with them, we've done this research for them that they then went out to the market. And so they invested or they, they raised funds for their, for their fund based on this research and this work that shows the correlation. And this has been the holy grail in the talent world. Mm-hmm. What do you do to invest in your talent to create this good job that will create those outsized returns, right? So their entire investment thesis, they only do deals where they can look at the workforce and see not like, oh, this is bad around the, the workforce, but this creates opportunity, Right. And that's where they're seeing the, the potential uplist in, in both. It's that intersection of social and financial cre- value creation through this good job. I was going to say, it's the concept that not viewing the workforce as a cost center, but saying maybe it's an asset that has been under invested in. That could be that could be pure dollars. It could be time. It could be underinvested in improving processes to maximize the value. There's many different levers to it, but this idea that you could create value by fixing underinvestment, mm-hmm. poorly tracked and in, in monitored investment, investing investment in the wrong, in the wrong things, things, right? Yes. So that you're, and you're not even measuring returns, so you don't even know that you're making suboptimal investments. And again, the M&A lens brings some focus to that for sure, but I think this fund, they're demonstrating that this is actually a, a valid business premise, um, which probably helps with maybe some of the you know the the ESG skepticism, right? That no, there is actually a element to this that is very much value creation driven, and it's not just quote unquote like doing the right thing and, mm-hmm. and all of those kinds of and also showing that the S and ESG is more than diversity inclusion, mm-hmm. right? DE and I is so critical, and there is a lot that also shows that ro- like. Real DEI efforts result in financial value creation as well as social value creation. And there's more than that. That if you invest in your dollars in different places, you can create both this social and, and financial value creation. And together with the same, with, with each, you know, there's too many initiatives and too many mm-hmm. organizations. So one of the things that we really focus on is how do you not boil the ocean, but how with a single action or a single that you can, I'll say, ring the bell of multiple, um, you know, multiple goals. Well, we've seen this, right? That if you have too many, too many goals, too many objectives, you have no objective, right? Yes, and, exactly. but there's also the, you know, I think the old 80, 20 rule applies a bit too, that you can often create a lot of the value by focusing on a small number of things, but you need a robust process and you know, some sort of a ROI type thing is is the lens I would apply to say I have limited time, limited resources. Where am I going to invest them 
to get the most impact. And I think that kind of discipline is what like this fund is bringing to what previously was deemed to be, oh, this is all qualitative. You can't really, you know, turn this into numbers where you can make an objective decision on where you're investing your money. But I think your point on that, you know, time as a currency as well is important too. But I also think if I even take the say D E and I statistics and if you really are digging into them and not just kind of taking it superficially, you actually could potentially get to your turnover. Uh, statistics that you started with in your first example, because if you're digging in to say, is there equal promotion opportunity and is there otherwise, that's going to start to lead you to say, why are all these people leaving so early in their career? And yes, there might be an, you know, a, a diversity element to that, but there also would be it just examining your workforce and valuing your workforce differently. So it's again, back to your point, Andreas, of there's more to this than um, that you can actually be creating value and it's not just squishy, but yeah, well that just reminded me of another um, example from a deal that I thought was so powerful was as we were diligencing it, we were looking into turnover and we were looking into DE and I statistics and it, you know, that internal rate of promotion, mm-hmm. I think this brings it to life because a big piece of this business um, was a call center, right? Which was, 90% staffed by underrepresented minorities, right? And then as we looked at the turnover and where they did external hiring, the top three positions leading this group recently had turned over in the last 18 months. All three of them, they went out to the market mm. and hired white men to lead. So as you think about the the call center workforce and as they look ahead mm-hmm. and role models matter and people who look, work, operate like you in leadership, that matters to get, how hard am I going to work at this? Is there opportunity for me? Right. Right. And so those types of things, seeing that in terms of that internal rate of promotion and how that can unlock or not the the energy, the focus um, of that workforce, I thought that was a pretty powerful. And so our investor, as they saw that, they said, okay, we need to like adjust. So it's not necessarily, you know, it's we're not making cuts, right? And it's not necessarily, quote, spending more, but it's shifting the focus and making sure there's more intention around mm-hmm. the real things that really matter in, in the organization. Right, because in your example there, if you're not preparing your call center workers and all you're doing is saying, hey, do you know how to answer the phone? They will never be ready to take on those additional positions. And that goes back to some of the points you've made, Andreas, of what's a true invest in, investment in your workforce versus what's sort of a baseline just to keep the workforce operating as it is. Yeah, I mean, if you treat your call center workforce like they're never going to be more than working in that cubicle, they, they have no basis to move into a, a management position or something else somewhere else in the organization, then you're by definition not investing, right? You're basically, it's again, it's just a period cost to, yeah. you need X number of people to do X number of calls per hour and to a certain level of quality at the end. That's basically, you know. Versus the organizations where we're starting to see people, I'll, I'll say like, you know, 
realize this and there's different roles in a call center and showing that there's connection and career path. Like as you get these skills, you can move to this role and work your way up. So powerful organizations that are doing that they're seeing, they're seeing the returns. Well, and I think again, to bring it back to our audience, it applies broadly within their companies. But even if you think about your own accounting department or, you know, your FP&A or otherwise, like thinking about the progression of those people, you're going to get more value just just in that action doesn't even have to be for the entire organization. So let me then talk about our third point, because we've sort of, we're starting to touch on this anyway. And it was your um, idea that there's more to labor cost management than just sort of job cuts and otherwise. And so what are you really seeing there from a real life point of view? So I love this third topic because it brings it all together. Yes, exactly. Right? Well, so, yeah, um, I felt like we were leading there. <laughs> we're leading there, yes. Um, and so um, as you think about labor cost management, again, I want to go to our private equity firms because I do think the more sophisticated PE firms are leading the overall market, right? And as they um, look at the percentage of spend on labor and workforce, how significant it is. And a lot of PE firms have like, you know, um, economies of scale on sourcing and procurement, you know, leverage purchasing, but not many have had this kind of discipline. Like, so what is our pragmatic, practical, and just even business as usual approach there, right? As well as um, recognizing that talent is at such a premium now, right? So what we are seeing is this intersection of, I'll call it voice of the worker, Right. Which is getting at, are we spending our dollars and our time in the right place that the workforce values to get after? Do they feel they have a good job? How motivated are they? How much discretionary energy are they putting into this? So like practical, tactical example, um, one of the the largest PE firms, most sophisticated now on every deal um, are doing, um, we also have like technology enabled experience and there's an AI preference analytics tool that, that we often use. And I love this because um, it goes in and it surveys the workforce, right? And using AI, if you think about the, um, the eye charts, yes. right? Do you prefer A or B, mm-hmm. right? And so in this survey, it's also taking a moment to redefine rewards. Remember how we talked, we just talked about time as a currency, the workforce is appreciating that too, right? So what we're finding is that redefining rewards as mentorship, accessibility to mentorship, accessibility to new skills, the concept of flexibility, the value for shift workers of having consistent shifts in what they do, um, different um, parts of paid time off, that those are actually perceived as more valuable than that additional dollar in the 401k or dollars towards a deductible in health and welfare plans. And so by thinking about redefining rewards, thinking about the what matters to the workforce, you, they're going out and saying, okay, we've asked you what you prefer. This is what you've said. And we have example over after example of you know, we look for at least 85% of the workforce. If we can find 85% of the workforce prefers a different quote rewards and I'm doing air quotes yeah. <laughs> rewards package versus what they had before. It doesn't mean that they just like this new rewards package. They prefer it to what you had before while also 
reducing costs and, 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 and spend by m- several millions of dollars. So one of the examples that I, that I have found pretty powerful and that was surprising to our investor was it was um, it's a, a chain of auto parts um, aftermarket products um, and it's the chain of stores and retail. So think about as you think about the workforce there and the likely demographics. And so meanwhile, their health and welfare costs were going up significantly. Um, they were thinking, well, we're going to have to pass some of this onto the workforce. That's going to be tough. But how can we think about this? How can we redefine this? Um, and in this one, as they went out to the workforce and said, do you prefer A or B? Um, this workforce that was 80% male, um, a, I'll say less tenured, younger workforce, yeah. as you think about that. And what they found is that the, this workforce really wanted was more parental leave, because they were at the ages of, of right. you know, wanting to have some time. So this organization was able to pass on some of the costs of this health and welfare increase. They provided some parental leave, made some also some adjustments. It was also interesting how much disability was valued. And they were able to, like, decrease their spend in other areas. And it was such a surprise to them about how much that disability and the the parental leave, which was the parental leave was not that expensive to them to do, but the the bang for the buck. And so we're seeing similarly that people are so willing to trade. If you invest in me today for my future skills, that you're investing that's compounding in my future versus a dollar today, I just get that dollar and it ends there. Though that trade-off has been really surprising. And the PE firms are now seeing because they know some of the reputation they have in the market. So imagine every deal they start with, starting with, we want to hear what matters to you. The voice of the worker matters to us. And then taking action. That's also the key because a lot of workforces get surveyed and then nothing happens. So you survey, you say, we asked, you said, we heard, and this is what we're going to do. What a wonderful way to start the investment process. And, and while you're also, again, driving social and financial value creation because you're creating, quote, a better perceived job and that gets people energized. And I get, still care that all totally makes sense to me. I guess putting my more skeptical hat on, even in your example, you said 80% of the workforce. And so anytime you're, you're providing benefits or making changes or otherwise, it's it's unlikely it's going to be a hundred percent and you may have the balance between an older worker and a younger worker or a working parent and a, you know, single person. Like there's so many competing demographics and otherwise, how do companies then think about balancing the person who wants to come to the office because they like the social interaction and the person who never wants to come to the office because they don't have time for a four hour commute? You know, there's so many different things. How, how do, do we see- think about those trade offs? Yeah, is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, I think an, like another way to frame it is what we found was that 85% of the workforce preferred this. Mm-hmm. So how can you, and especially if it you can do it financially, how can you not do that just to keep 15% of the workforce happy? The other way to flip it is, so would you do something just because, or not do something just because 15% of the workforce like that? And so the power of this is also that when you say we listen and the vast majority of you want and need this. So for the whole organization, we are going to make these changes so that we're keeping up with what 
what you want and need as our, you know, critical asset, this, this, this workforce. So it sounds like then transparency is important because I think sometimes changes get made and then everyone's looking at each other, who is the person that wanted this? But then if you can say, well, here's why. And I mean, you gave real reasons in your example and maybe it's not taking everything away from that 15% either. So there's they, some balance. They still have that, a great, yeah. yeah and exactly. so, and I think that's also what we're finding on all of this may involve change. And by reflecting this quote, voice of the worker, you're bringing in the S and ESG of creating a good job and we're listening. And it's the, we asked, you said, we heard, and we did. Like that discipline structure, again, it's not a huge technology investment. It's just operational discipline on driving communications and the transparency around the topic. So I think we could probably keep going with all these examples. <laughs> I, I need to have you back because I want to hear more, Carrie. But let me try to bring this all together then. And maybe Andres, bring you back into the conversation because I think then can listen to this. But, you know, again, if I'm a CFO or I'm some other skeptic that might be listening, measuring the value of what I'm doing, I think becomes very important, even if it's not captured in the financial statements, which on yes. this and I have talked we'll about yet. Yes, previously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. So then, Andreas, I know we've previously actually on the podcast talked about a study that measures the value of human capital. And how, how do we think about human capital and, and measuring that value? Yeah, so there, there's many different ways you might think about it, but it is, uh, you know, it, it, it is challenging. Um, but what one study that's out there kind of looks at, you know, if you work in a organization that sort of, I'll say, does a lot of the things that Carrie's describing, makes a lot of investments in, uh, in their human capital versus one that, you know, just operates like any business, very focused on maybe other elements of the operations. This study sort of demonstrates that, you know, if you stay for two years in the company that makes a lot of investments, these are the types of job opportunities that would be open to you. If you're at that other company, you know, this is kind of where you would land after two years. And they say, okay, now you roll the clock forward another two years. And what you'll see is that the company that makes lots of investments, the type of job that that four-year person now could be qualified for is something dramatically different than the um, than the position that the person who's chugging along at the other organization has available to them after four years. And that dramatically different job opportunity carries a very different salary. And so one way to think about the value add is just the market value of that person, what they can command on the labor market is different after those four years, depending upon what kind of organization they're in. And you can run studies to show you know, that that difference is not inconsequential. You see this with like some educational organizations have done something similar where they've demonstrated that, you know, what your what types of opportunities are available to you with this degree versus not having this degree is a measure of the human capital value add effectively of having exited the labor market for a period of time and engaged in that uh, that area of study for, you know, 20 months or whatever it is. And in terms of studies, just to give you a heads up that um, one of the private equity firms that I mentioned who's so invested in this good job driving both social financial value creation, we're working on that second iteration of that research right now with them. So in the fall, we will be publishing that comes up that, that helps to um, identify what are those factors of a good job that drive social fi financial value creation with the practical application. 
right? So I am, we are super excited. And just think about how times have changed. A private equity firm is investing mm-hmm. in this with us. We are jointly researching. We're working with their data science team and our data science team to pull this together because there is such conviction already about the progress that's been made and how much this this asset, the human capital asset, this workforce, our leadership really drives the returns of these organizations. So I'm super excited. Well, I we already come back and talk about yes, that. Yes, I already our, made a note. With the client, if you'd like. Perfect. They would love to, to be here with us. Yes, well, it sounds like, and I, like I said, I already made a note. And that leads to probably my final question, although happy to also have open-ended Actually, I do have a final question, but I'm going to go back to accounting for a moment. I did not want to distract us at the beginning because I wanted to get into the heart of it. But Andreas, why is there a specific exception for human capital in the business combinations accounting? Was that specifically excluded or how did they think about it to say, oh, we're not going to value this? Well, yeah, it is explicitly excluded. You know, they say that uh, workforce does not meet the uh, definition of an asset, basically. And, you know, there's multiple reasons. Like I said, part of it is just the control concept, but that's a, you know, a decision made decades ago before we had these types of insights and innovations, which is really why I thought it was important to bring this private equity example. Mm-hmm. So I know there's a lot of skepticism around, well, yeah, it isn't an asset because it's too squishy. The accountants say it's not an asset. There's all sorts yeah. of reasons, they but but when you have smart money saying, well, that's all great, but in the real world, we're investing real money and we're, you know, the leading edge smart investors are doing this. That's how their their thesis to create value in a transaction. I, I don't know that there's a better argument that this is real than sophisticated investors investing on that basis. So that's probably my last word on the subject. <laughs> well, actually, so then that was, you already answered my last question as well. So I'll pose it to Carrie too then. And Carrie, as you do these deals and work with these different companies, what do you think is coming next from in this you know, area? What are we going to be talking about next year at this time? Or do we still have such a ways to go in, in what we're working on here well, I think as Andreas said earlier, what we're talking about are the leading edge examples, right? And so what I, my hope, right? And I guess we need more than hope, but what I expect is as we continue to demonstrate that these actions really drive both social and financial value creation, the next step is having consistency in in scale that this done and also getting these underwritten on more and more deals. The more and more that that happens, I think it might then help drive some of the accounting, right? Because if, if private equity investors, if banks are willing to say, yeah, there's a dollar value of this, right? Which is where we're headed and what we're seeing this time next year. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see how far we can all progress this together. Um, because I think it's, um, it's, it's about time. It's yeah, terrific. well, also, I was just going to say, talk about true win-win. I, you know, if you can have a happier, more fulfilled, better trained, all of these positives workforce and create value for the company. It, it truly, shareholders. Yeah. I mean, that truly is, I think, what if someone was taking a step back and saying, like, why did we have ESG or otherwise? That's kind of the ultimate goal, yeah. potentially depending on your point of view, I guess. But in any event, Andreas, Carrie, such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. And that's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.